Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It's been estimated that a lifetime prevalence of depression is in about 17% of the population. And of those who take conventional antidepressants, there is a 50% response. And when response occurs, it then takes usually a month or so for the medications to truly kick in. So the clinical interest in a faster-acting antidepressant is therefore very strong. One of the substances that has been suggested to have a role in being a faster-acting antidepressant is ketamine. Charles Nemiroff is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Miami, and he has graciously offered to give us some of his time to discuss the concept of ketamine and depression. Dr. Nemiroff, thank you so much for being with us. It's a great pleasure to be here with you and with our audience today, and you're bringing up an important, a very topical topic, if you will. What is ketamine, and how did it get involved as a contender, or at least in the research level, as an antidepressant? Ketamine is a general anesthetic that has been used clinically, but also in veterinary medicine, and it has a variety of pharmacological properties, one of which is an NMDA antagonist. That is, it's an antagonist at a receptor that's considered one of the excitatory amino acid receptors in the brain. And for a variety of reasons that you already alluded to, namely the fact that we're just simply not as good at treating depression as we either thought we were or hoped we were, so that a relatively substantial number of patients who are treated with conventional antidepressants don't do terribly well. The search for new antidepressant treatments is an avid avenue of investigation. Frankly, over the last several years, we've not made virtually any progress in either understanding the neurobiology of depression better, nor, therefore, in developing new antidepressant treatments that could address the causes or etiology, if you will, of depression. For that reason, a broad net has been cast And as you know, Abby, there are a variety of new potential treatments we're not going to talk about today, like deep brain stimulation and rapid transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, also called repetitive TMS. And so ketamine was one of the strategies that was arrived upon at two different places in the United States, one at Yale and the other at the National Institutes of Mental Health Intramural Research Program. A number of studies have been reported which have suggested that ketamine intravenous infusions result in a rapid and short-lived but very significant antidepressant response. We're talking about a completely different mechanism is what it sounds like. We absolutely are. Our group and others throughout the world has done lots of work to suggest that Some patients, many patients, most patients have something to do with something awry with their serotonin system or their dopamine system or their norepinephrine system. The fact of the matter is our drugs that target the serotonin and norepinephrine system, at least in an acute trial, do not get patients into remission. In remission now, I'm not talking response. Remission is generally defined as a 50% improvement in depressive symptom severity. So you can have a response but still have quite a very significant amount of depressive symptoms, whereas remission is associated with a virtual elimination of all of your depressive symptoms. 
So if you look at remission, which is what the gold standard of treatment is, in the STAR-D study, which looked at citalopram treatment up to 40 milligrams, only between 28 and 33% of the patients actually got into remission, which is obviously an absolutely unacceptably low number for a disease associated with terrible morbidity and mortality. You mentioned NMDA. I don't know that everybody knows what that is. Can you explain that a little bit, please? N-methyl-deaspartate is a amino acid neurotransmitter. The brain has, of all of the 100 billion neurons in the brain, there are the largest percentage of the synapses in the brain actually are either glutamatergic or aspartergic. These are amino acids as well as GABAergic. These are three amino acids or modified amino acids that comprise the bulk of neurotransmission in the brain. And of the glutamatergic neurons, when glutamate's released, it acts on postsynaptic receptors, of which one of the subtypes is defined by its binding to N-methyldeaspartate. Those receptors are called NMDA receptors. Ketamine is a drug that is an antagonist of that glutamate receptor subtype. It is that action that has been hypothesized to be associated with this short-lived antidepressant effect that we'll be talking about in a minute. The new antidepressants will be based on some sort of NMDA modulation. It is possible. There are a couple of arguments for and against that notion. On the positive side, there is another drug that's being developed by a company that's called Glix-13. And Glix-13 is a NMDA antagonist that is presumed to have less side effects than ketamine and has a reported, at least in a study, an antidepressant effect. And it also has antidepressant effects in laboratory animals as well, and it may have fewer side effects than ketamine. Having said that, that was a relatively small study. It's being developed by a company called Naurex, of which I incidentally have no relationship. On the other side of the coin is memantine, which as you know, is a drug that's been approved by the FDA for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease is also an NMDA antagonist, and it has failed in all of its trials to treat depression. So it's unclear whether this is truly the mechanism of action of ketamine or whether ketamine may have other properties that may mediate its antidepressant effects. Over the past several years, there's been a considerable attention to look at the general field of neuroplasticity to determine whether, in a general way, depression is associated with reduced neuroplasticity and whether, in contrast, antidepressants of various classes actually result in an increase in neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity has a variety of forms and flavors. So neuroplasticity can be involved in neurogenesis. And there have been many reports that drugs like SSRIs, other antidepressants, mood stabilizers, in laboratory animal studies can increase rates of neurogenesis. Now, to be clear, when you and I were in medical school, we were taught that the adult brain was not capable of neurogenesis. But in recent years, it's very clear that there are a few brain areas, in particular the hippocampus and some other brain areas, 
called the subventricular zone, that are in fact capable of neurogenesis. For some time, there was the idea that all antidepressants had this property of increasing the rate of hippocampal neurogenesis. Frankly, our group was unable to replicate much of those findings, that we found increased neurogenesis with lithium, but we certainly didn't see it with SSRI antidepressants. And there's been a movement away in the field, away from that hypothesis. And now there's been a considerable emphasis on other forms of plasticity, such as synaptogenesis, dendritic pruning, formation of new neural connections. And I think it's too early to draw any conclusions. However, there have been reports that ketamine does share with certain antidepressants the ability to increase neurogenesis or affect neuroplasticity. Some poor soul or their family is suffering from a treatment-resistant depression, and they've really tried everything to good clinical aggressiveness and durations and so on. And they go on the Internet, and they see that there are places that are advertising instant results from ketamine. Your thoughts on that? We do not offer ketamine at the University of Miami as a treatment for depression, and I'll be sharing with you some of the reasons why. But let's start with the fact that whenever one looks at patients who are treatment refractory and you do a careful history, in many cases, I would say most cases, they have not had adequate trials of currently available and evidence-based treatments. So let me be clear about what I mean. So many patients will come to us and say that they suffer from treatment refractory depression, and in fact, they have failed after treatment with an SSRI, perhaps with another antidepressant, say bupropion, and maybe even a third. But often those patients have never been treated with a tricyclic antidepressant. They've not been treated with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. They've not been treated with electroconvulsive therapy. They've not been treated with any of the evidence-based psychotherapies, such as cognitive behavior therapy. And frankly, they haven't been treated with a combination of psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy. And none of them, virtually none, have been treated with repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. All of the aforementioned treatments are approved by the FDA for the treatment of depression. And you then add all the augmentation strategies, some of which have also been approved by the FDA, including antipsychotic drug augmentation. I know you're well aware many antipsychotics have been shown to convert antidepressant non-responders to responders. And then there are a number of combination therapies, two antidepressants, two antidepressants plus psychotherapy, mirtazapine plus venlafaxine, bupropion plus an SSRI. And of course, even though psychotherapy is not FDA approved, we know it's evidence-based. The sum of all of that harangue I just gave you is that a great many patients who come to us with treatment refractory depression have not had the benefit of all of the currently approved treatments. Just want to use that as a baseline to have our discussion about ketamine. So you said you folks have decided not to use ketamine in your institution. Why? Right. The question is, what do I think about the data of ketamine efficacy and what I think about ketamine and its issues related to safety? First thing I'd say is the total number of patients who've been given ketamine in controlled trials, comparing ketamine to either another agent 
or to placebo or some other controlled treatment is remarkably small. I would hazard a guess, I didn't look at the literature this morning, but I would hazard a guess that less than 300 patients have been in controlled clinical trials. I'm not talking now about open studies. I'm talking about the kind of studies that the FDA would require to consider the drug for approval for the treatment of depression. We know from a long history in psychopharmacology that there are many treatments that appear to be effective at first blush that turn out not to be effective in well-controlled and well-designed clinical trials. So I think we all have to be cautious, a grain of salt, when we look at clinical trials, even though we're somewhat desperate for new effective treatments. That's the first point I'd make. The second is the data that is currently available in the clinical trials is frankly quite impressive in that ketamine is associated with a significant antidepressant effect. Though short-lived, it certainly is over by seven days. In some studies, the effect is over by four days. The question is, how good are the data? And I think on the one hand, the patients who've taken part in the trials are very treatment refractory patients. So the fact that they've had the kind of positive response that they have is quite impressive in its own right. On the other hand, I have concerns about the control groups. What you have to ask yourself is, is it truly blinded? Because after all, the cornerstone of good clinical research is how controlled are the trials and are they truly blinded? And the answer is that it's very easy to tell the difference between ketamine and placebo. Ketamine is a recreational drug. It was first used as an anesthetic and for pain relief, but it's largely used as a recreational drug, and it's banned in the United States and in the UK and in, in all other countries in the world because it's an abused substance. And the reason it's abused is that it makes people high. They have dissociative reactions. The difference between getting a saline infusion and a ketamine infusion is rather obvious both to the patient and to the investigator. So you can tell who's getting ketamine and who isn't. The patient could tell and the investigator can tell. In the studies that Carlos Zaretti did at NIMH, and he's an excellent clinical investigator, the comparison drug was midazolam. Midazolam is the drug that's given to patients when they have a colonoscopy. IV midazolam is very different than IV ketamine and it's very likely the patients could identify the difference and knew what drug that they were getting, and so could the investigators. So whenever you're dealing with a non-blinded situation, you always have to worry about investigator bias. We have to be very cautious about issues of patient safety related to drug abuse liability. Ketamine is a drug of abuse. Patients have abused this drug on the street for years and years. That's why it's a scheduled drug, and that's why it's not in widespread clinical use as an anesthetic. That raises several questions. One is, by giving ketamine repeatedly to depressed patients, are we going to create a generation of new drug abuse? And that would be a real serious public health issue that I think we need to be really concerned about. 
let's remember that a number of opiates were developed in the hope that we could find opiates that provided adequate pain relief in the absence of substance abuse. And in the end, we created a whole bunch of folks who abused OxyContin and heroin and other opiates. And so I don't want us to repeat that experiment. And frankly, every month my office receives phone calls from patients who've been in clinical trials who have gotten ketamine and have asked whether they could get ketamine here and how much money they're willing to pay for it. That's worrisome to me because you never have patients who call you and say the same thing about an SSRI or an SNRI or any other antidepressant. Now, it may well be that what the ketamine experiment is teaching us is that there is, in fact, a novel mechanism of action that we can explore to treat depression, as you suggested, in a rapid way without any drug abuse liability. And it would be wonderful to be able to give patients an infusion of ketamine or a ketamine-like drug and have them have instant relief in the absence of them being high or euphoric. So there is a move now to try to use ketamine at sub-anesthetic and at doses that do not produce a dissociative reaction. The last issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry had an article on the use of dosing of ketamine for the treatment of PTSD, and the results seemed very promising. I'm just suggesting that we be cautious because of its drug abuse liability. The BBC did a very good piece about a year or two ago on the, a clinic in Leeds that actually dealt with a lot of ketamine abusers in the uh, there's a TV show called Drugs that I happened to see last night that talked about ketamine, that people tend to assume that it's not dangerous. It really is because it is a legal drug. Well, actually, there was an article in The Economist in the last few weeks in which one of the drugs that was turning up increasingly as a drug of abuse was ketamine. One of the questions that you raised is, what's the appropriate parator drug to do in a study? One could be rigorous in asking the question in a different way and saying, is the property of ketamine in producing an antidepressant effect intimately related to its ability to cause euphoria? And frankly, if we compared ketamine to, say, LSD, would we see the same kind of antidepressant effect and would be having this conversation in which we suggested that, and you know, this was suggested in the distant past, that hallucinogens might play a role in treating depression and other psychiatric disorders. One can't get away from the fact that these very refractory patients both in the United States and in the UK, have been treated with ketamine. Recently, there was a study done that came out of the University of Oxford that was published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology in which patients were treated over a three-week period with repeated ketamine infusions. They got either three or six infusions, a relatively low dose, a half a milligram per kilogram over 40 minutes, and a small but significant number of patients had a really good response, but it wasn't as good a response as the patients who had gotten higher doses. But it did show that there were some patients that did, in fact, have quite an excellent response. I think it was 29% of the patients responded. Of these 28 patients, eight of them responded or actually got into remission. So it may be that very small doses given repeatedly may have a role 
in getting people out of their depressions. What has concerned me is the fact that there are ketamine clinics springing up. Obviously, this is not reimbursed by any third-party payers. Folks have to pay out of pocket. It's expensive. And what prevents patients who have a drug abuse problem to go to these clinics to get ketamine to keep abusing that drug? Every new finding in medicine in general and psychiatry in particular opens up a number of questions. In the best of worlds, we stumble upon the mechanism of this rapid antidepressant effect, and we can either modify the molecule or capitalize on that receptor in order to develop a rapidly acting antidepressant without abuse liability. But I think we're a long way from there. Charles Nemeroff is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Miami. Thank you very much for taking us on a tour of a very necessary topic that we've got to bring to the people who are seriously depressed. Again, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Abby.